0: For those who don't know, my name is Rob. I'm the lead pastor here at Citizens Church. And it is a joy to gather with you this morning for the sake of being reminded of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in Mark chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. So I'd encourage you to turn there if you have a Bible. If if not, it's in your bulletin right there so you can still follow along. And anyone who is familiar with children knows that they are difficult to reason with. I have a couple myself, and I believe that our oldest is particularly difficult to reason with. One of the things that we're trying to do is teach her the concept of strategy. saying, hey, if you want this particular thing, what's a good strategy to get it? Is throwing a fit a good strategy? You want an Oreo? Is throwing a fit a good strategy? Or is finishing your dinner and asking nicely a good strategy. And admittedly, that doesn't work 100% of the time. <laughs> but she's starting to it's starting to click a little bit, which is great. Hopefully it continues to click and there are better strategies used to get the things that she wants. But the the passage that we're in this morning, we see the Jewish religious leaders coming up with a new strategy. They've tried to come to Jesus before they've tried to trap him in various ways and now what we see is a new strategy being brought forth and what we see is that it's the Jewish religious kingdom coming alongside the Jewish or excuse me the Roman political kingdom both the Jewish religious leaders and the Roman political leaders wanted to see Jesus's ministry cease wanted to see it come to an end And they have now come up with a new strategy that although even the Jews and the Romans are butting heads, they both have a common goal. So the enemy of my enemy is my friend. They say, we're kind of butting heads here. You don't like, the Jews don't like that the Romans have come in and overtaken everything. The Romans don't like that occasionally there's a Jewish leader who does a coup and tries to stir up some revolt. So they say, this guy Jesus, not only does he have hundreds of followers, but he now has thousands of followers. We both want to see his ministry come to an end. So as we butt heads, let's put him in the middle and say, where's your allegiance? Jesus, where's your allegiance? Is it with the Romans or is it with the Jews? Because whichever direction he goes, there are repercussions that we will get into later in the sermon. But this morning, so we set the trajectory for this sermon talk about the question that they're asking Jesus, where is your allegiance? That question is asked of us every day, not just once, but hundreds of times throughout the day. Where is your allegiance? Now, Jesus, as we look at this passage, he knew where his was and he made it very clear and he's trying as well to make it very clear for his disciples. But I would submit to you that the only way we're going to answer that question faithfully, in a consistent way, the question of where is your allegiance, the only way we're going to consistently answer that faithfully is if we have a strong understanding of where our identity lies. So if we have a strong understanding of where our identity lies. So we said that we're in Mark, we're in Mark 12, chapter or chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. If you're flipping in your Bible, you'll find that Mark is in the New Testament. It's about three-fourths of the way in your Bible. See Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Chapter 12, we're in verses 13 through 17. And what we've seen, as I mentioned earlier, is that the Pharisees have tried to tempt Jesus before. They've tried to trick him and trap him. We saw this particularly in Mark 10 when they asked him about marriage. When that question was going on, it's just the Pharisees. But now... In this passage, we see the Pharisees and the Herodians, and there's significance to that. But before we get there, just more background, we are still in Holy Week. So we've talked about Jesus entering into Jerusalem triumphantly on Sunday, came in on a donkey, fulfilling prophecy as a king. And then on Monday, he cursed the fig tree and overturned some temple tables. And on Tuesday, they passed by that fig tree again, recognized that the fig tree was now withered. Jesus' prophetic statement about that fig tree not producing fruit ever again came true. And then he teaches about faith on Tuesday. And now, today's passage is Wednesday of Holy Week. Now, Holy Week, if you're not familiar with that, is the week leading up to Jesus' resurrection, his crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. So this is Wednesday, he's crucified on Friday, and we know the ending, spoiler alert, he raises on Sunday. So this is the final few days of his ministry. And what we've kept saying is that his teaching is getting more and more explicit. And as his teaching gets more explicit, his opponents are getting more and more desperate. They're trying everything they can to bring his ministry to an end. So as they are increasingly desperate, as they try to do everything that they can to bring his ministry to a halting screech, they now form an unexpected alliance. And then as they form this unexpected alliance, there's also an unexpected answer provided to their question. You'll see that those are your two points in your bulletin. An unexpected alliance is formed, and an unexpected answer is provided. That's going to be the framework for the passage as we go through it. And so as we head into that first one, let's pray, and then we'll get going. Father, thank you for the gift to be able to look at your word. We ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would make it clear to us what your word is saying. Use me to speak clearly. Holy Spirit, soften my heart, soften the hearts of those that are in this room to what your word says. Help us to answer the question faithfully of where our allegiance lies. Thank you, Jesus, for being faithful throughout. And now as we come and proclaim your faithfulness, proclaim what you have done, we're grateful that we're not the only ones doing that. Where we think of Redemption Hill Church in Galloway, a new church plant younger than us, we ask for your blessing on them, that you would send them people, that you would provide them with fruit, and that ultimately that disciples would be made and you would be glorified in that. Lord, we thank you for Veritas Community Church downtown, Lord, in their faithfulness to proclaim the gospel, where we are grateful for the work that you have done through them. We ask that you would continue to keep them faithful and continue to keep them proclaiming this good news and making an impact for the kingdom. Lead us in our time this morning. Use your word preached. Use the song sung. Use the Lord's Supper ultimately to point back to Christ and to magnify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So an unexpected alliance formed. We see this in verses 13 and 14. So look in verse 13, right from the get-go. And they sent. Who's they? So is it they sent, they sent these Pharisees and these Herodians, they is the Sanhedrin. So the Sanhedrin is the religious leaders of that day. There was a, a board, so to speak of 70 religious leaders plus the high priests. So 71 total, and they are of a mixed group, but they send Pharisees and they send Herodians to Jesus. Now, the Pharisees, we've we've covered this before, but just as a way of refresher, the Pharisees are religious leaders devoted to exact observance of the Mosaic law. They would make laws to prevent them from breaking other laws. So they tried to put buffers and buffers and buffers of laws to ensure they never broke the Mosaic law. So they were devoted to exact observance. And because they were devoted to exact observance of the Mosaic law, when the Roman when when Rome comes in and takes over a territory and says it's okay if people are breaking the Mosaic Law, the Pharisees are upset. They hate Rome. They are not on good terms with Rome, which makes it interesting because the Pharisees and the Herodians came together. So the Pharisees are religious leaders who are devoted to the Mosaic Law. The Herodians are religious leaders who are devoted to their politics. They get their name from Herod talked about Herod and Mark six, how he's a ruler of a fourth of a kingdom. Only reason he was a ruler of that little fourth of a kingdom is because Rome allowed him to be, they took over and they said, so long as you do not try to subvert or usurp Roman rule we will allow you to, to keep your post. And so Herod says, okay, I can agree to those terms and all of those who are devoted to the Herodian dynasty, they are saying, great, Rome's letting us, we're for Rome. So these Herodians are still religious leaders, but they're religious leaders who are driven primarily by their politics, primarily by their love for the Herodian dynasty. So the Pharisees and Herodians, they do not agree. They are not friends. However, they have a common enemy. So they're sent to Jesus, they're sent to lay a trap. So look in verse 14, we see this trap being laid. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are true. We know that you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So this trap is laid, and the primary way that they laid this trap is by puffing Jesus up. They say, Hey, Jesus, we know. You're true. He lists off four things. You are true. You don't care about anyone's opinion. It's not to say that he's not caring. It's just regardless of what someone's opinion is, he's going to continue to speak truth. You're not swayed by outward appearances. And then further, you t- truly do teach the way of God. So they're puffing him up. Hey, you are you are all this and a bag of chips, Jesus. You, of anyone, can answer this question we are wrestling with. So please do Just just help us come to an understanding of this tax question that we have. Now, they don't really believe these things about Jesus. Otherwise, they wouldn't be trying to trap him. They would be listening to him. You don't say that hydration is necessary for life and then refuse to drink liquids. Okay. So as they puff Jesus up and say that he truly teaches the way of God and he is true and all of these wonderful things, they don't really believe it because they're trying to trap him. But ironically, even in them trying to trap him, it's funny the, the sovereignty of God using their words here, they still speak truth. They're trying to trap Jesus. And so it's got to be tough for these Pharisees and these Herodians to say the things about Jesus that they're saying. Hey, Jesus, even though we're trying to stop you because we think you're wrong, you are true. You, you truly do teach the words of God. You're not swayed by anybody's opinion or their outward appearances. It had to be difficult for them to say that. But they are so against Jesus' ministry that they're willing to swallow that pill. Say, okay, let's say all these nice things because it'll ultimately serve our, our goal. It's a good strategy for us to get him to finish this ministry. And so they ask the question, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And they ask it in such a way that it's yes or no. Should we or should we not? Now, if he says yes, you should pay taxes to Caesar, then all of his Jewish followers are going to be very upset with him because he looks like a traitor. He looks like he's given in to the Roman dynasty, Roman rule, and he has now compromised his devotion to God if he says yes. But if he says no, then he's a teacher of sedition. He's another guide raising up a revolt. And so the Pharisees and the Herodians would immediately Go to the rulers and say, this guy is saying not to pay taxes to Caesar. So then they can get armies involved. So Jesus is in a, a no-win scenario. Now, these Pharisees and these Herodians could not fault Jesus based off of Scripture. They couldn't point to the Old Testament and say, you're a false teacher. Look, you've, you've clearly taught in a way that is contrary and so that's why they, they form this unexpected alliance. Sinclair Ferguson, in commenting on this, this alliance that's being formed, he says, in every age, so it's not just unique to Jesus' time, but he says, in every age, indeed, in the experience of every Christian, the time comes when opposites will be united against the gospel. The struggle for self-centered living will see to that. The struggle for self-centered living We'll see to that, that opposites will unite against the gospel. It's funny that they're saying that Jesus is true. Truth cannot be mixed with error to combat error. However, error can be mixed with error to combat truth. And that's what's happening here. And we see this unlikely alliance being formed to combat the truth that Jesus is speaking. And something for us to notice this morning is that these Herodians... And these Pharisees, they were sent by the Sanhedrin. And just like the Herodians and just like the Pharisees, we are all sent. We're all sent. The question is, where are we sent and for what purpose? The Herodians and the Pharisees were sent to stop Jesus' ministry. They are sent to him to stop him. Christians, equipped with the gospel, are sent into the world to make disciples. We are all sent, Christian and non-Christian. We are all being sent by something. If you are in Christ, then you are being sent with the gospel to make disciples. If you are not in Christ, then you are being sent into the world to hinder the gospel, whether knowingly or unknowingly. Something to pull just from this passage before we even get any further. Something to pull is that we will be opposed if we are taking the gospel into the world that has been consistent all throughout the gospel of Mark. And if you continue to read the scriptures, you will just find that to be a consistent theme. We will be opposed. And something else is that we will be lied about. Now, this passage right here that we're looking at, they're asking whether or not she paid taxes. But in Luke 23, this is after it takes place, when they're bringing Jesus before Pilate, they say this about him. They began to accuse Jesus, saying to Pilate, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. We just read the passage. Jesus doesn't say that. But when this unlikely alliance doesn't work, they revert to lying. So we as followers of Jesus, as we take the gospel into the world, we just have to have to have the understanding that we're going to be opposed. And it may even come to people lying about us. So we see Jesus being lied about right here. So Christian, this morning, you are in fact... Sent. We are all sent. It's a matter of who is sending us. Where are we going? What is the purpose? Can it be said of you as you are sent into this world, the things that were said of Jesus, that you are true, that you do not care about anyone's opinion, that you are not swayed by appearances, and that you do teach the way of God? Can those four things be said about you as you are sent into the world? Reading that passage, reading through those That list of four things. Not caring about anyone's opinion, that stings for me. Not being swayed by appearances, that's tough. Which of those four things are tough for you? Are we true? Do we not care about anyone's opinion? Are we not swayed by appearances? Do we truly teach the way of God? You can't teach the way of God if you do not know the way of God. We must be in his word. Families, are you discipling your children to be prepared for this? It's not to say that you want to make them scared of the world it's not our what we're trying to do here but we want to disciple them to love christ more than anything that the world can bring them so when they are opposed for being a follower of jesus they find that to be a light and momentary trial that their enjoyment of jesus is greater than their dissatisfaction with the way that the world is persecuting them their love for jesus is greater Than their love for self non-christian if you're in the room question for you is are you resisting the gospel from going forward are there ways that maybe knowingly or unknowingly you have aligned to prevent the gospel from going forward whether that's in society whether that's in your home whether that's in the workplace or in your own personal life are there ways in which the gospel has been hindered by you are you preventing, are you trying to prevent the gospel from taking root? And this morning, if you're, if you're hurting. Be reminded that if you are in Christ, whatever you're going through, if you are in Christ, an unlikely alliance has already been formed between you and God. This is only through Christ on the cross. And no matter what you are going through, He is using it for your good and he will not leave you or forsake you there's an alliance there formed through the cross that is an unlikely one, but it has been formed if you are in Christ. He will wipe away every tear. He will make all things right. He will bring perfect justice. And church, we need to remind each other of this. As we see this unlikely alliance being formed to go against the gospel that Jesus is bringing, as followers of Jesus, we're trying to bring that same gospel and more alliances are being formed against that, we must remind each other that Jesus is worth it. We must remind each other that he will make all things right, that he will not leave us. Even when we go through the darkest valleys, he will not forsake us. That's why we gather on Sundays to be reminded of this good news because that is really good news that Jesus would never leave us nor forsake us, that he has restored us back to God. The theme that we're seeing throughout Mark is God restoring his wayward people. He has done that in Christ. So we meet with one another during the week, whether that be community groups or just coffee or breakfast, whatever it is, need to remind each other. The gospel has to be something that we not only just affirm, but the very air that we breathe. How does the gospel speak into this particular situation, no matter what it is? So we've seen an unexpected alliance formed. And now after they ask the question, Jesus provides them with an unexpected answer. Verse 15, we see very clearly that Jesus knows what is happening. He says, why? He says, knowing their hypocrisy, why put me to the test? Jesus is aware of what's going on. He knows that they don't believe all the nice things that they just said about him. He knows their hypocrisy. They're saying one thing, but they're actually doing and believing another. He's aware of this. And so he says, why put me to the test? He says, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Now, a denarius... Is a day's wage and it's a Roman coin. So any Jew using a Roman coin it would be frowned on because it would be seen as an act of idolatry. So when Jesus says, Bring me a denarius, you might there's likely a crowd there, and they'll probably say, Hey, who's got a denarius? You have denarius, 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 you got. Eventually, someone has a denarius. They bring it to him. And he says, Whose inscription is on it? Whose likeness is on it? Now, the likeness and the inscription on the coin, something to know about a denarius is that the likeness on it had the image of Caesar. So there's an image of Caesar on this coin. But it's not just the image, it's not just the likeness that he's talking about. He's also talking about the inscription. That's what we see in the text in verse 16. They brought one, and he said to them, Whose likeness? an inscription is this. So the likeness was a picture of Caesar on this little coin. Think of Jesus holding up this coin. Whose likeness is this? Caesar's everyone sees that And the inscription. What about the inscription? Well, the script inscription said on one side of the coin, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So you'd see a picture of Tiberius Caesar on the coin and say Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And he turned the side around and it would say Pontiff Maximum, which means high priest. So Caesar was seen as son of the divine and he was seen as the highest religious authority of the day. Now, Jesus, as he points out the image and he points out the, the inscription, he then provides an answer. So look in verse 17 it says, Jesus said to them. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Jesus gives them an unexpected answer here. He points out the coin, says whose likeness and the description is this. It's very clear that it's Caesar's likeness and in the description regarding Caesar. says, give to Caesar what's Caesar's. <laughs> and It's not just the, the render to Caesar that which is Caesar's. He's making a, a political statement. He's saying, pay your taxes. It's like, this is, this is Caesar's. All right? Clearly, there are laws. Like, give to Caesar. What is Caesar's? And we can go down a whole, I mean, it could be a whole another sermon about how we interact with government, right? We're going to touch on it, okay? But this is not to encompass all of that. Just a thing to point out there. But as we talk about this, as we talk about Caesar, as we talk about Jesus saying, give to Caesar that which is Caesars, we have to understand the principle that government is good. If you read the first seven verses of Romans 13, it's very clear that government is instituted by God for the good of his people. There are three, if you go throughout scripture, three institutions that are ordained by God. We see family, we see the church, and we see government. All three, all three spheres are meant to bring glory to God, and he has designed ways in which they are to operate to do so. So, as God has ordained family, and God has ordained the church, and God has ordained government, all three of these are authorities that we should recognize. All three are institutions that we should honor and that we should submit to. However, we are to submit to them insofar as they are operating in the way that God has designed them to operate. Jesus says, Um, in Matthew 28, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. So any institution that has authority is because Jesus has given it to them. And so Jesus being our highest authority, if the family or if the church or if the government goes outside of God's design for it, then our highest authority is God. We must stay faithful to him, But insofar as it is operating in the way that God has designed, then we do submit. That's the way that we honor God. A helpful uh, phrase, this is not unique to me, but a helpful phrase that I've heard regarding this, whether it be the family, whether it be the church, or whether it be the government, is that we, we submit insofar as that institution does not command what God has forbidden or forbid what God has commanded. We submit insofar as that institution has not commanded what God has forbidden or forbidden what God has commanded. Government is a, a good thing. It's a good institution under God's authority for the good of people. It's what theologians will call a common grace. So we see that even people who are not followers of Jesus have received grace from God, whether that be through health or whether that be through... Systems like the government. I mean, think think of the way that you you got here this morning. You probably drove a car. The fact that we have the ability to go at that kind of speed in a relatively safe vehicle is evidence of God's common grace on his people. There are safety regulations put in force by the government so that cars are made a specific way. Then there are roads that have speed limits. And there's a system in force where if someone tried to hurt you on your way here, then they would be charged the act of common grace that God has given us these things. And really there's been no more explicit time in all throughout history where God's common grace has been more on display than today. We have things that just a hundred years ago, people would think it to be impossible. So God's common grace to us is rich. And one of the things for that, one evidence of that is in fact government. And so when Jesus says, render to Caesar that which is Caesar's He's saying, look, I've instituted this government. Which is fascinating for him to say to, to pay this government what they're asking. Because this very government that he's saying to hey, pay your taxes to is the one that's going to put him on the cross. Talk about persecution. Jesus is saying, Yeah, pay him. I know exactly what they're gonna do to me here in a few days. And he says, pay your taxes. Doesn't say pay more than what you should. He says, pay your taxes. This government is instituted by God for the good of people. However, just as the coin has Caesar's image and Caesar's likeness and inscription, there's a greater coin that God has created that he's put his image on. Each of us are image bearers of God. We are made in his image. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. See that likeness verbiage again. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So we have God's likeness stamped on us. Then when it comes to the inscription, if you read Romans 2, for sake of time, we're not going to go there, Romans 2, verses 14 through 15, you will see that God has written on our hearts his law. Those who are in Christ and those who are not in Christ, he has written his law on our hearts. And so we bear God's likeness, and his inscription. And so when Jesus says, give to Caesar, the things that are Caesar's, but give to God, the things that are God's, Jesus says, government is something that I've instituted, pay your taxes. He says, but ultimately your life, it does not belong to the government. Your life belongs to me. Your life belongs to God. God's image, God's likeness, God's inscription has been stamped on you. Jesus doesn't fall for the bait. He honors government while pointing to a greater authority. Every institution instituted by God is made to ultimately submit to his authority. If any institution goes directly contrary to God, then we must prove our allegiance to God alone. God, our greatest authority, has stamped his likeness on us and he has inscribed in our hearts his law. His likeness and inscription, therefore, is on us, which means that we owe him our lives. I was given a gift this past Christmas. of a, it's a book embosser. So as I get books, I usually write my name in it and put it on the shelf. Someone gave me a gift of this emboser, where if you take the book and you open up maybe the first page, you can squeeze it, and a nice little design says, uh, from the library of Robert Kane, as if I've got, like, this massive library. <laughs> I would love that, but I don't. But very cool in Bozer. So, therefore, if I were to ever, on my way out to my car from the office, drop a book without realizing it, someone could open the book and see, okay, this is Robert Cain's book. It's got my name on it. My name's stamped right in there. In the same way, just like that book belongs to me, we have God's likeness and description stamped onto us. And so therefore we belong to God. Every one of us. The question is, are we submitting to his authority? Christian, when it comes to the government aspect, especially in the current climate that we live in, are we showing charity to those who come to a different conclusion when it comes to how to submit to government in an honorable way? And if, There's some questions around how someone would do that. I would just encourage you to ask for clarification. Of all places on the planet where we should be able to show charity, it's within the church. So ask for clarification. Have a conversation about it. Something to consider is Matthew, if you you read through the the list of disciples, Matthew was a tax collector. He was big government. He was very much so pro-Rome made him very wealthy. Simon was a zealot. He was a revolter, no government. And these two guys come together in the only place where true unity can be found. That's under Christ, under the Lordship of Christ, massive differences in their opinions with regard to Rome and with regard to government or taxes. And yet they are united in Christ. all of us this morning get to ask ourselves, where is our identity? Talked about the only way we're going to be able to faithfully respond to the question of where is your allegiance is if we know where our identity lies. And so some diagnose questions, some questions to diagnose where your identity is, is when you are anxious, where do you go? What are the things that comfort you? When you are anxious, when you're concerned, and you feel lonely, where do you go? Where is your identity? What brings you joy? What are you willing to sacrifice for? Oftentimes, these things can point to where our identity is. And so, again, if you are hurting this morning, just remind you that if God has stamped His image on your life, then He has a uniquely vested interest in your well-being first and foremost that you would turn from your sin and embrace Christ. He sent him the exact image of his radiance so that he could show the great love that he has for you, so he could show the justice that is coming so that you, even in your hurting, can turn from your sin and find rest in Christ. Take your pain and all of its rawness to God. He can shoulder your frustrations. He can shoulder your sorrow. Take it to Him. And again, church, the gospel has to be the center of what we're doing. It can't be a hobby horse. It can't be political opinion. It can't be a theological opinion. The primary thing has to be the gospel. We must be centered on it. Not that we're only gospel affirming, but that we are gospel centered. David Platt in talking about this, he points out, he says, Caesar may be worthy of a coin, but God is worthy of our hearts. We appropriately honor government and honor government leaders. We see this all throughout scripture. At the same time, we ultimately glorify God. No worldly leader is worthy of our hearts. No governmental authority or political party is worthy of our trust, allegiance, and hope. Jesus alone is worthy of our trust and of our allegiance and of our hope. Jesus alone. So because we are in God's image, because his image and likeness and inscription has been stamped on us, we owe him our lives. Augustine, a church father, wrote, Caesar seeks his image. Render it. God seeks his image. Render it. Do not withhold from Caesar his coin. Do not keep from God his coin. We each have God's image stamped on us. But oftentimes, if we're honest, we just refuse to acknowledge it. And the call this morning is that just like the denarius coin reads, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. And on the other side, it says high priest. The call this morning is that you would find yourself, your primary identity in the divine son, that you would find yourself united to the great high priest. If you are in Christ, the inscription reads that you are a son of the divine. The inscription reads that you have been united to the great high priest, the one who goes on behalf of the people and makes atonement for their sin. If you are in Christ you've received his likeness not only do you have God's image stamped on you but you now have Christ's righteousness stamped on you and the only way that we can have communion with God that we can be restored to God is if we have a perfect righteousness outside of ourselves and that is available to all who would turn from their sin and embrace the gospel So now for all those who would do so, the father looks on them and not only does he see his image, but he sees his son's image. So therefore anyone who has the son's image, anyone who has the son's righteousness can now enter into the presence of God unhindered. Praise God that this is accomplished through him on the cross where our sin was taken and paid for, and his righteousness was poured out for us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you grateful that you have given us a great high priest. Grateful that you have sent your divine son. We certainly do not deserve it. You have been more gracious to us than what we deserve. Not only have you provided common grace, Lord, you have given us saving and particular grace. We are so grateful that you have provided that. And we ask that that would be made all the more clear to us this morning as we consider Jesus' finished work. Help us, as those who are made in your image, to find our primary identity in the Son's finished work. Not only do we have your image stamped on us, but Lord, stamp Christ's righteousness on us, we ask in his name. Amen.